How did raising money for a local Greenpeace group and selling washable nappies eventually lead to being awarded an OBE for services to sustainable business? Well, that's exactly what my guest this week did, and she is very deserving of that great honour. Listen in as I speak all things sustainable with Sue Riddleston. It's not every day you get to speak to an OBE. So this week I was very privileged to speak with Sue Riddleston, who was very deserving of her OBE that she was awarded in 2013 for her service to sustainable business as part of the role that she played in organising the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. But Sue has done a whole bunch of stuff before then, right going back to selling, would you believe, cloth nappies and raising money for Greenpeace in her local region in the UK. Now she's taking on the world, literally, uh, appearing in front of the UN and kind of giving some guidance to none other than the UK Prime Minister and others on sustainable policies for climate change and other issues just around sustainability. She has, uh, as well, a whole bunch of really useful resources on the site uh, for the business of the organisation that she co-founded in 1994 called Bioregional. You can check out all of their great stuff over at bioregional.com. But uh, for now, I hope you enjoy this interview with Sue Riddleston. Well, thank you very much, Sue, for joining us. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. I think you're the first person with an OBE to come on the Homestyle Green podcast. Really? It's a great honour. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, uh, it was a great honour to get an OBE, and uh, I I received it for services to uh, the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympic Games, so which was just a total joy to be involved in. So um, it was like double, double joy. It was like getting my own gold medal. Nice, nice. But there was a (laughs) lot of stuff leading up to that. You didn't just kind of happen to to run into that job one day. And both you and your husband or... Yeah, my husband and uh, co-founder of Bioregional Purin. Yeah, so did you both get an OB at the same time? No, uh, he got his, uh, I think it was more for the work that he did on forestry. Uh, so we got it for different reasons, which was nice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but uh, quite the team. So one thing that why I like to start out with, uh, Sue, is asking, and I, I, knew, I have a lot of architects and designers on the, on the show, but also some other people as well. But I really like to start by asking a big question about why. Why is it that you do what you do? Well, I think it's just a passion or, you know, an urgent calling, really, to feel that we're trashing our beautiful planet and it doesn't have to be like that. And how that sort of my quest or our quest here at Bioregional is how can we design our lives so that we can have really sustainable lives, happy, healthy lives within the natural limits of the planet. So it's... For me, it's all about 
it's it's more driven by I love people but it's kind of our habitat and our environment the planet that we live on and, and the fact that we're we're treating it as if it's our own property whereas in fact there's you know millions billions of other creatures and species living on this planet it's not just us why is there a sense of urgency for you when everyone else is seeing the same stuff each day and we're we're um the same sorts of things are going on why do you respond in that urgent sort of manner do you think well i think i think it was just at one point which was about 25 years ago uh yeah i i just thought this is enough you know there were a few things going on I think everybody has the same thing you know maybe it's for me it was um, seals dying in the sea around the UK from pollution you know they were saying they're being washed up on the shores it's pollution in the sea Um, and forests coming down in uh, Vancouver to sort of feed our need for paper which we then just all threw away and we weren't valuing it properly so those are the sort of things that were the sort of spur that sort of pushed me over the edge to think I'm going to change my career and I'm going to try and do something about this Um, and for other people it might be things like Hurricane Katrina Uh, I don't know what what it is in New Zealand that's bothering people but there's I think there's some sort of symptom that people come across that they think right well that's I knew it was a problem but that's really it for me now I'm going to have to take action. So what did you do about the seals? Well, I signed up to, uh, I phoned Greenpeace and said, uh, well, I was already a member and I said, what can I do to help? Uh, And they said, well, why don't you set up a local group and raise money and help us with our campaigns? And I said, really? You know, can I do that? And uh, they said, yeah. So I did set up a local group and for three years, got about 100 regular members and over three years at the time we raised about £20,000. And actually thinking that was probably... It was more than 25 years ago, but not too much more. But um, it, was a, it was a lot of money. You know, I, yeah. I, I was really proud of what we achieved. And we also got campaigned to, for World Park Antarctica. So, yeah, it was 25 years ago uh, because um, that's just come up for renewal. You, right. you kind of save something for 25 years and then 25 years goes by and it's, you've got to save it again. Uh, <laughs> but, I, I, but then I thought... Well, it's all very well, you know, it's really good to do this, but I just, my children were getting a bit older and I felt ready to to do a bit more. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to set up a green business and uh, I started out looking at, uh, I started out selling washable nappies on stalls. Right. Uh, at fairs and things uh, because I brought my kids up in washable nappies and I thought, well, it's so easy and it saves you money and so on and so on. Um, and... You know, had all these ideas and um, met Perun and in the end we just sort of evolved into setting up our own organisation. And we were actually, I was working as a information, I got a job as an information officer at an environment centre near here and uh, part-time. And uh, eventually my boss said to me, I think you should move out and set up your own organisation. It's nice when your boss says that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a bit harsh at the time, <laughs> but she did us a favour. Right. She was right. So before nappies, you didn't really have a business. You were passionate, but you were raising money for Greenpeace. That doesn't really help put food on the table for you, does it? No. 
So uh, what we did was we thought, I, I personally was very passionate about the impact of paper on the environment uh, and uh, wanted to do something around uh, sort of sustainable paper loops, you know, yeah. recycle your paper, buy it back, use paper wisely. And uh, I got on with that and Purin got on with um, sort of generating income from sm managing small woodlands in a sustainable way. And for both of us, we called it bioregional because it was about how can we produce the products that we need more locally and using waste and local sustainable resources. And that was how we started out. And it was only later that we when we needed a new office, that we got into uh, building BEDZ, uh, which BEDZ Eco Village in South London, which is where I'm speaking from and where I live, or where we both live. Mm -hmm. um, and it was only then that uh, that, that has become our most well-known project and inspired a whole lot of other activities. But we still do work on sustainable products and we work with some retailers, uh, like home improvement retailers, or, you know, to, to design and develop sustainable products. So we just got started. We set up as a as a charity because we, although we wanted to go into business, we realised there was actually quite a lot of research to do. So um, we thought, great, we can get some grants to help mm -hmm. pay out, pay ourselves. But, you know, when we started out, we we were doing it for the love of it and we you know, it was quite a while before we got a, a regular salary. And we actually were on one of those government training schemes where you get paid, I think it was £40 a week, uh, and you get free business training and they scrutinise your business plan. And that was actually really helpful and useful. Right. Uh, and, and we started out at the same time as the guy who started Super Dry, and he was also on that scheme. Right, I'm not. That, I'm not familiar with Superdry. <laughs> well, it's a. Oh, you don't have it in your museum. It's a brand of clothing. Oh, okay. Uh, I never right. quite get it myself, but you know, <laughs> people like it. <laughs> right, right. So, what is your business model now for Bioregional? Well, I guess over. We always had this. Uh, our mission is kind of. Our mission is one planet living. So when we first started out, it was that thing of we're consuming too many resources. How can we, you know, how can we live well within the natural limits? And ecological footprinting came along as a, as a tool and an idea. And so we, we use that approach, you know, we use that thinking to, yeah. to help us communicate it. And we, after we did BEDZ, we formalised one this idea of One Planet Living into a, a, fr a framework of 10 principles. Yep. So everything that we do at Bioregional, uh, we use our One Planet Living framework, which mm -hmm. goes from health and happiness to zero carbon. So right. it's, it's kind of the three pillars of sustainability. Right. Uh, and that is available for anyone to use. We also mm -hmm. uh, have our own projects and initiatives. So we have had our own real estate companies and we're just going again with uh, a real estate company to build One Planet Communities here in London. Cool. Uh, and we work with partners. So if people come to us and say, oh, I'd really like to do something like, like BedZed or like one of our follow-on projects, One Brighton. We say, oh, well, you, you know, you can use One Planet Living uh, and we will check that for you. Uh, we, can, we can do basically advisory consultancy. Yeah. Um, but consultancy doesn't sound right. We always see it as more like partners because if people commit to One Planet Living, then it's a quite a long journey. 
Yeah. And we see it as a partnership where we're trying to help people to achieve that. So I guess it's those three ways that it's either we we have our own little business operations, um, we have which are associated with the charity and you know which the charity benefits from. Uh, we do advisory work for other people, and we have a network of One Planet partners, mm-hmm. and anyone can use One Planet Living. So we're, you know, any of the listeners can look at our website regional uh, look up one planet living and, and find out more about the 10 principles and uh, you know how they can use it for their own projects and I guess that's why um, I was talking about you know sustainable living by design yeah. because if we we can all take a look at our lives using this framework and and it, I think the home is a really important it's, it's just the basis isn't it home uh, to think about our lives and have we made it easy for ourselves to live a sustainable lifestyle. So with the, the One Planet Living framework and sort of understanding your ecological footprint and where the impacts arise and then using the One Planet Living framework to come up with an action plan to make your lifestyle and your home truly sustainable is, you know, what we, we, we'd like everybody to have a truly sustainable life, of course. Yeah. And that, Having modelled it, we've, we sort of modelled it for London and through some of the projects that we've done, I know that it's possible, which is very, you know, for me, it's, I feel that I am an optimist, but I do feel that sense of hope that we've got all the tools we need. We can do this. We just need to get on with it. I come across this quite often that I, I totally agree that we have got all the tools and the challenges are not really technical ones because somewhere someone has probably solved all the technical pieces. I think it comes down to a marketing problem and convincing people that these types of things are worthwhile. You've got 10 um, components to the the frame or the 10 principles just going through them, I mean, health and happiness, for example, is the first one. Sounds great, but how do you sell that? Well, if, if you're talking about homes, whether it's new build homes or existing communities, I think when you come to visit a place where, I, I guess it's at who are you selling it to, I suppose if you're selling it to a developer uh, or a local authority, or they start with a developer, it's something which, when you actually visit a One Planet community, it's just got a lovely feel about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got reduced car parking. It's got um, more greenery. It's got, you know, more places where people can meet each other and, mm-hmm. it, and little places to grow food. And it can be done within the normal range of build costs. It's just, if you, you know, if you approach it from the beginning for the design of the place and reduce the car parking, increase the community spaces, increase the planting. You know, you might even be able to build a bit more to get, because roads and car parking is just dead space. You know, you don't earn any income from it. Yeah. You don't sell that. It's a waste. Um, so it doesn't have to cost more. It feels better. So for a developer in terms of marketing, well, it sells faster, which is money in the bank. Also, when people rent the places, we've found evidence of people stay for longer. They might pay higher rents because they really like it there. Uh, and and, and so, so have you got evidence to back that up? Yeah, so we did some analysis of the One Brighton project, which is 
I guess you might know Brighton. I don't yep. know, it's like 50 miles from London. It's like mm-hmm. London on sea. Uh, so we had 172 apartments there. And uh, we recently published a study, I think it was either early this year or last, late last year, uh, with, with some evidence around that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got evidence here from, uh, from the Grow community in Seattle, uh, who it's such a lovely place. And, you know, they've, it's really sold like hotcakes. Uh, we've just, they've just started the sales for the Bista Eco Town, which is a one planet community in Oxford, UK. And uh, again, the sales are really, you know, they're flying off the shelves, as it were. Wow. So that's really exciting that, because I, I, I pick up what you, you're saying at the start there that when people go to somewhere, they experience it and they, they love it because they're there and they can smell it and feel it and see it in person. But that's that's only going to be a limited number of people that get to do that, aren't, isn't it? You, at some point, yeah. you've got to have the, the numbers to say, look, th- there's a market for this stuff. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I think that's one reason why we still run guided tours here at Bedsed and they right. still keep coming. It's incredible. I mean, when we moved in here, we opened an exhibition and we thought, oh, well, we'll close it after a year. Uh, but they just still keep coming and we don't, up to now, we haven't even really advertised it. So I think people coming to have a look, that's, that's important. What's, uh, just, but just I, on I think the... it's a policy issue as well. I think yeah. the developers, I think on the one hand, you know, you, you need all of these things. You need more of a level playing field for developers. So we need planning and building codes that encourage, uh, not well, encourage, but also set a sort of red line of, well, you've got to at least do that. And then we encourage you and give some guidance and advice that you can also do this. Uh, and I think a lot of where countries, where that has happened, I think it works. And um, that's one of the great things about the European Union, that we set rules, say, for example, for energy rating for um, white good products like freezers and things. Yeah. And that's just ramped up. It's just created a level playing field. The same thing with cars. You know, all of our cars now are so low emission. It's it's amazing, and yeah. we've got huge numbers of choices of electric vehicles now as well. And that's that's come from policy and regulation forcing manufacturers to do something. But I think there's always the pioneers have to kind of prove it first, and then that's why our model of impact or you know system change is to do these demonstrations. To you know, we've got our own little business here. It's a not-for-profit, it's a social enterprise, but, you know, it is a business. Yeah. Um, and that these demonstration projects, which are real places people live, will help to change policy and practice, and we use them to actually literally lobby um, to change policy and practice. And we did actually change the policies in the UK, but then the new governments scrapped everything. So... <laughs> It can go backwards. It's like your like your parks. Yeah, you, know, you you do it once, but then you have to go go and save them again yeah. in another round. Um, was the Green Deal part of that? The Green Deal in the UK. I mean, we did champion basically home retrofit because yeah. it's just the low hanging obvious fruit. But I think nobody's cracked the business model for that yet. And the government here in the UK copied a German example, which Mm -hmm. was successful, but somehow made it too bureaucratic. So I think we need intelligent policies and we need to direct 
um, subsidies towards sustainable living and not towards unsustainable living. So at the moment, fossil fuel subsidies are everywhere. You know, I can't remember the figure, but it's huge. Mm. But if we could redirect... And in the UK, our government's, you know, giving incentives to oil and gas and um, fracking and so on. Whereas if, if we can redirect that, I think people need a bit of an incentive to insulate their homes and builders need training to do it. Uh, it's, it's no good just sort of thinking, oh, a few big companies will sort this out because what we found in our experience of home energy uh, efficiency retrofit is that um, people do it when they move house or, you know, the time you get the builder in, that's the time. You move into your new place, you think, I'm going to get, I need to get the kitchen fixed up. I yeah. want an extension on the back. And while I'm at it, I'll get the insulation done. So yeah. you need your jobbing builder to have the skills to do that and not to get sort of totally tripped over by government bureaucracy. And that's why it didn't happen in the UK. So it's been, a, it's, it's been acknowledged as a failure. Yeah. From your point of view, where do you think you can have the most impact? Is it by doing projects and uh, helping people, uh, I was going to say in the real world, it's all, all the real world, but actually doing stuff? Or is it that advocacy and lobby and trying to change government policy? Well, I think it's both because yep. I think – if you do stuff, then you've got a legitimacy mm-hmm. and a, a depth of knowledge. I think that people should not make policy if they don't actually know the subject. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I have to say that it is, I wouldn't say it's easy because, you know, I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, but, um, you know, if I think, it, I think it's something about picking your moments. So, for example, um, in the UK, um, uh, we'd, we'd done Bedsed and there was a lot of talk about building eco-towns. So I wrote to the Prime Minister and said, would you like a hand with the eco-towns? Because we've got some expertise there. Yeah. I like um, that. You just write to the Prime Minister and say, can I give yeah. you a hand? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then he didn't reply, but um, then I got an invitation to attend, you know, a number of pe- experts who were all talking about how should we do the eco-towns. Right. And then the government, I think they only paid me £3,000. They, then they asked me to join this eco-towns challenge panel. Yeah. And basically it was a bit like The Apprentice or Dragon's Den, if you have that, yeah, yeah. Um, where the, the people who wanted to build a new town came in and presented their proposals to us and we tore them to shreds, you know, if they were right. chances awesome. who would... Uh, and that worked really well, um, and we helped to influence the planning policy statement. Yeah, so, that's a great um, idea. So I think this, if you're going to do advocacy, I think you have to pick up on something that's happening. It's quite, I think, in a way, we're making the weather because we're doing it, and then when the chance comes up, you know, there's a bill going through Parliament or, or something, you know, jump in at the moment and make your changes to that. The other thing that we've got very involved in is the new United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So, yeah. uh, Just a small bit of work? A, just a small bit of work, yeah. We <laughs> actually, that was the how can we make more impact thing. Right. So back in 2008, I was privileged to hear personally um, yeah, Jean-Pascal Van Ypersil. He's, I think he's going for chair of the intergovernmental panel on climate change at the moment, mm-hmm. but he was a senior scientist 
uh, on that group who, you know, tell us how is climate change going. Uh, and to hear directly from him what was happening, it was around the time that everyone was saying 350 parts per million, we've just gone past it, you know, it's yeah. a tipping point. And yeah. um, so I, having asked him about that, uh, and then him, you know, hear, hearing that, that, that just made me think, and all of us at Bioregional think, we've just got to go higher. You know, we've been doing our nice little demonstration projects and thinking that it will catch on if we, you know, we do our bit. And we thought we've just got to try a bit harder here. So we actually got involved in the Rio Plus 20 process, which was the 20 years after Rio conference from 2010. And I think we helped to shape uh, the idea of getting sustainable development goals. And there'll be the follow on from the Millennium Development Goals. Uh, because we held the first side event uh, at the UN on sustainable development goals with Colombia, uh, with the government of Colombia. And uh, then in 2012, when it was announced that we would have these goals, I remember feeling incredibly frustrated because I always want to get on with things. Yeah. And they said, oh, we'll have to wait till 2015 when we finish the MDGs and we can only bring yeah. it in. And I was like, oh, for goodness yeah. sake, how long do these things take? <laughs> so we've we've had an official role where we've helped to... Uh, they go, you know, we had to sort of pick up UN speech. So there's a process that's going on. We've got involved in it. We found a niche where we can particularly even then following on from that add value. So we have a particular role as the global focal point for sustainable consumption and production. So we continue to sort of come up with reports and suggestions, briefings for the governments. And we have a colleague of mine was there last week, um, you know, as, you know, as the work goes on. So I think we've really got it in there. We've got a goal for sustainable consumption and production. We've got, um, I think, about 40% of the goals have will contribute to sustainable consumption and production. Right. Uh, even though most people in the street do not know what that means. I, I suppose it's quite obvious in a way, but it's, it's jargon, but it's a UN word. Yeah, so I yeah. think when, when they come out, I think it's up to all of us, when the sustainable development goals come out, it's up to all of us, to say it, to, governments will sign up to it in September and it's up to all of us to use that. So a bit like uh, Agenda 21 was a spur for uh, people who cared about the environment and sustainability and they were able to use that around the world. I think the Sustainable Development Goals, they're for all of us, they're universal. <clears throat> uh, so for rich countries as well as poor countries, whereas the Millennium Development Goals were just for poor people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've all got something to do and we all need to know what these goals and targets are and we need to use them to, to say to our governments, we'd like to do something here in support of the sustainable development goals, whether that's creating sustainable communities where we live, because there's targets and goals for cities, um, for water, for energy. You know, if you look at them, there's 17 of them. Uh, and if you look at them and the targets underneath them, you can you can see how it relates to our everyday lives. This is big stuff, there, Sue. You you <laughs> kind of you're literally taking on taking on the world, growing from the the little little organisation that you were once, and and building um, um, Z, and now going to the UN. I guess that's all come about though because of action, and you alluded to this that. It's not. A, I mean, every anyone can send a, a an email to the prime minister they want to, but 
they're only going to get a response from someone who's actually got something to back that up with and and who's who's done some stuff and clearly you'd done some stuff first to prove that you knew what you're talking about and and were committed to following through on that and I guess that's kind of snowballed a little bit and and you've positioned yourself to to be in the right place at the right time I guess so I, I mean I just encourage everyone you know I I know I've got an OBE and I know that we've managed to achieve this stuff, but at the same time, I don't even know how to say this. It all sounds coming sounds a bit wrong, but I, I just feel that anyone can do these things. You just have to feel that I think it give, I think it gives me a strength because what I'm doing is not for myself, you know, and I think the same for all of my colleagues here at Biregional. Mm. We're doing this for some bigger purpose. It's not about me it's not about ourselves and there's yeah. a, there's a real strength in that you know when i say to people well this is what the science tells us is necessary or this is what morality tells us is necessary mm. uh, there's a real strength and a power in that which you can use to have the have the goal you know to actually yeah. write to the prime minister yeah. or turn up at the un yeah. why not yeah yeah and i, I think that the, the world is open to people if you know if i can do it any any one of you listening can do it, you and especially do it. these days as well. Yeah, it's it's the world is so connected. Like I'm speaking to you on the other side of the world. Yeah, it's so easy to reach out to people and um and and to get active in some way. Um, I know I'm short of time, Sue. Very quickly, there's so much we could talk about. Um, a couple of specific questions. Bringing back down to uh, to details, your ten principles. Why would someone go for one planet living versus, um, say, um, um, natural natural balance or um, oh, pressure's on. I can't. It's gone out of my mind now. <laughs> lead. Um, not lead. Um, the other one. Um, living building. Living building challenge. It's very. Yeah. There's, there's quite a lot of crossover there between the living building challenge because you, you cover water, culture, wildlife. Um, sustainable materials, transport. Though if there, there's a lot of overlap there. So why would someone use One Planet Living versus something like that? Well, I think the difference with One Planet Living is it's it's about how we live our lives. Yep. It's about sustainable living. And one of the great things about it is you can use it to do your house, yep. but you can also use it in a business or you can use it in a local authority. So it creates a common language for sustainability and it's easy to understand and implement. Nice. Um, but I, I think all of these things are great. Natural balance, living, building change, they're all great as well. So I yep. think people should pick pick the one they like, you know, and just it doesn't really matter, you know, in a way we're, we're all working to the same goal. And do you describe um, One Planet Living as open source or can anyone use it yes anyone can use one planet living what you can't do is say it's official one planet living you can just use it right um but what you can't do is put the logo on it and say it's one planet living unless we've checked the plan and you know made sure that it's it can be sort of it's good enough to be called one planet living in a in a sort of public way if that makes any sense yep Absolutely. And is that limited? Where's that limited to at the moment? Uh, what do you mean geographically? Yeah. 
Well, it's being used around the world. Uh, we had a PDF toolkit which was downloaded in 60 plus countries. So people just download the toolkit and use it. And I've bumped into people who said, Oh, I used your toolkit for our sixth form college. It was really good. You know, we awesome. made a plan. And <laughs> but we're, try- we're actually working on a, a, a an in- if you go to our website right now, there's a kind of a holding position because we're actually working on having more digital tools, more online tools, and also face-to-face training. So where we can't actually reach people, because sometimes people say, well, I want to use One Plant Living. I've got your toolkit, but I still feel a bit unconfident. I still want to know more. So we're currently working on how can people get training, basically. How can we help people? And I love the fact that you go Brighton, Oxford, North America. (laughs) (laughs) China as well. Mexico, (laughs) South Africa, Australia. Um, that's very cool. You're obviously um, spreading the word beyond the UK. Um, sure. Where's Where's the best place that people can go to find out more about One Planet Living and about all the other stuff that, that you and Bioregional are up to? Well, I think our Bioregional website is currently like the best place to go. But if you did Google One Planet Living, um, you know, you'd, you'd see lots of resources there. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think the bioregional webpage, I think it's just bioregional.com. Yep. Very quick question, uh, a specific question about housing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Technical question. I can't throw just tucking the deep end here. Does um, external insulation retrofit make sense? Yes, there's a big debate about that. I think uh, in the UK there's a big debate about that at the moment because yeah. – where people have been having external insulation, sometimes it can lead to all sorts of problems with damp and uh-huh. bridging and uh, ingress of water, you know. Uh, so I think it depends on the building type and the building research establishment have or are about to publish a study of a lot of external wall insulation in the UK. I think it does make sense, uh, and for some house types where it's more straightforward, uh, you know, I think check what these what the issues are. I think there's something around quality control, yeah. Yeah. training, attention to f- detail of the finishing of the job. So I think if you had a good builder working on it, it should be okay because a good builder would, who's trained would would know even with the most difficult house types what to do. Mm. Um, mm. That's the, I think that's the main thing. And so we sounds- have actually done a trial with internal wall insulation as well. Yeah. Uh, and and there's some interesting things going on with laser cutting, uh, yeah. and obviously you lose a bit of space inside, but uh, but that's pretty good. That that seems to be a, a good option too. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some stuff on that. Um, it sounds like there's some good overarching principles there of getting good quality attention to detail, but also that there's no silver bullet that's going to do all house types in all, all situations. Yeah, there's there's some really interesting new stuff. There's a there's an organisation in the UK that I'm um, I'm ambassador for called CORE, the Centre for Refurbishment Excellence. So C O R E. Yeah. If you yeah. Google that and retrofit, it's a, a centre of excellence in the UK in Stoke on Trent, and they are basically we we just had a seminar there with lots of new ideas that are coming up with it with a sort of passive house approach as well that everyone thought was very interesting. Awesome. Where you sort of layer layer it over without any gaps. I mean, obviously you could have gaps for the windows, but um, yeah. 
<laughs> but that looks, so I think there's some interesting um, new products coming out as well. Right. Hey, Sue, you've been very uh, um, gracious with your time. Really appreciate that. Um, thank you very much for connecting. It's, uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. And I, so we need to look out in September for stuff coming out of the UN. Is that right? Yeah, look out for the Sustainable Development Goals and look out for the new uh, One Planet Living resources uh, that will follow shortly after that. Brilliant. Awesome. Hey, thank you very much. So look forward to um, seeing more of all that stuff in the news and, and staying in touch. Great. Thanks so much. Lovely to speak to you. And um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sue Riddleston, OBE. I certainly found it very inspiring and quite an honour to speak to someone who has been um, so active and so far-reaching in, in the impact that they are having and loving what they're doing at the same time as well. Clearly very passionate and a uh, very inspiring person. You can check out all – I'll put all the links uh, from that episode in the show notes. So head on over to homestylegreen.com and you'll be able to find this episode. And definitely check out bioregional.com. That's all one word, bioregional.com. And they've got a ton of resources and information on their site, some great case studies that they've done, and also all the information that Sue was talking about with the One Planet Living – Go and check that out because those 10 principles, we didn't list them all, but they're all very well um, listed on the page and very easy to understand. So go and check that out. Also check out ProClimber. Thanks to them for bringing us uh, out to the world each week. Couldn't be uh, doing it as well without them. So thank you very much. You can check them out, proclimber.com. That's it for this week. Now go make a better place to live. 